Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. I'm Mike Thompson sitting in for Ann today. Two and a half years after the indictment, after a trial which lasted seven weeks and was filled with testimony, text messages, and secret recordings, a jury has found former House Speaker Larry Householder and former State Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges guilty of bribery and racketeering. It took the jury about nine hours to reach its verdict. Jurors agreed with prosecutors who said Householder coordinated and Borges participated in a $61 million scheme to get Householder elected speaker, pass a billion-dollar bailout of two nuclear power plants, and then defeat an effort to repeal the bailout. After the verdict, U.S. Attorney Kenneth Parker said Householder sold the statehouse and Borges was a willing co-conspirator. He called the verdict a victory for Ohioans. You cannot sell the public trust. You cannot sell the public trust. It is not for sale. And you cannot conspire with others to sell the public trust. Larry Householder, dressed in a suit and a camouflage baseball cap, left the courthouse saying he would absolutely appeal. I think that uh, the justice system is what it is, and there's a process. This is one step to the process. And we're going to utilize every process we can in the judicial system until we get it right. Householder's co-defendant, Matt Borges, also maintained his innocence and promised to appeal. I did not believe that anything proved that I had committed in, that I had engaged in a, a racketeering conspiracy, which is why I fought this from the beginning. This fight is not over as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know really what else to say at this point in time other than uh, we'll move on and take it to whatever the next step is. Today on All Sides, we'll examine the verdict, explore what it means, and look at what is next for Ohio politics. Joining us now is the reporter who has lived with this story for nearly three years, if not longer. Laura Bischoff is the politics and state government reporter for the USA Today Network's Ohio Bureau. She broke the story of Larry Householder's arrest back in July of 2020 and has been covering this case and the seven-week trial from beginning to end. Laura Bischoff, welcome back to All Sides. Hey, thanks, Mike. And, you know, I was there covering Householder 1 when he was the Speaker of the House back in 2001 to 2004 as well. Yes, we will get to that. It's, it's been a two-decade uh, tangle, dance, as I called it, uh, with uh, with federal prosecutors for Larry Householder. Well, you were in the courtroom yesterday. You were there for the whole trial, so you saw it from beginning to end. Uh, give us an idea what it was like inside that courtroom yesterday when that verdict came down. Well, Judge Timothy Black, who, um, you know, heard the case, uh, he's on senior status. He's a U.S. District Court judge. He advised everyone. He, he said no outbursts either way. Um, and he wanted it to remain calm and quiet. And it did. Um, I was watching um, Householder and Borges as the verdicts were read. And there was no no emotion, no um, really no no response. Both of them were very stoic. Who else was in the courtroom? Who was in the gallery? Well, um, U.S. Attorney Ken Parker and some of his staff were, were there, um, and then also some FBI um, agents and their staff, um, the public corruption team leader, um, he was there. There was um, uh, a sampling of lawyers and, and others. The thing is that, you know, they were out on deliberations, and then it's just a matter of like maybe 15 minutes between the time that we're alerted that there's a verdict and when they assemble everybody in the courtroom, 
and they read the verdict. So there's no opportunity really for, you know, Borges and Householder to have their spouses or other friends or family come in. Yeah, uh, it's a climactic end to what was a, a you know month long, years long investigation. Nine hours. That's how long the jury had this case. It's not a whole lot of time when you consider that you had to consider seven weeks of evidence and testimony. It would seem to indicate that the jury was pretty convinced. Well, there's that, but also it was only one charge. It was only one count of racketeering against each one of them. So they didn't have to, you know, work through bribery and wire fraud and money laundering charges. And they had they had um, a lot of instruction from the judge. I think the the jury instructions ran like 74, 70 pages, 74, 75 pages. And those were read aloud to them um, on Thursday. I'm sorry, on Wednesday morning. And then they immediately started deliberating around 1045 that morning. How did they look? Did they, was there any reaction they had, the jurors? Was no, um, you know, it was pretty, calm, like, again, really calm. It didn't erupt in any kind of um, chaos or anything like that. Um, the jury picked um, picked their foreperson and he stood up and, and you know, told the judge, yes, we have, um, we have a unanimous verdict in both of them. We're talking with Laura Bischoff, politics and state government reporter for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Of course, we're talking about the, the Larry Householder trial, which came to an end yesterday. He and lobbyist Matt Borges convicted of racketeering and now face sentencing. You were there for the whole time, Laura. What was the key, do you think, to convincing this jury? Was there one key, one piece of evidence, one testimony, one witness? You know, it was it was more a matter of volume of evidence. Um, they had collected millions of pages of records, um, hundreds of text messages. I think the fact that First Energy signed a deferred prosecution agreement in July of 2021 and then turned over all these text messages from their executives. A lot of those text messages surfaced um, and and were able they've used those in the trial. Uh, Larry Householder deleted a lot of stuff off of his phone. And so um had it not been backed up by First Energy on those corporate phones, those messages might not have been available. And, that, and also, I think I think that in general, they just they had like a just a, 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 a huge volume. And these were really big, big numbers, you know, sixty one million dollars in bribes, one point three billion dollar bailout, four and a half million Ohio customers um, or four and a half million, you know, Bob and Betty Buckeyes. Yeah were impacted by this. And that, you know, the secret recordings, you know, the scene of at a 25 or $2,400, excuse me, dinner at a suburban Columbus restaurant, private restaurant, sliding an envelope across a table or and with a $400,000 check in it, that, that type of scene has to stick in a jury's mind. Yeah, I think the the private dinner um, at the private dining club, that was, and that, that had the best audio actually. Um, the FBI is kind of terrible about picking good places to have secret recordings made because let me tell you, there was a lot of background noise in a lot of the a lot of the other um, recordings, but that one was super clear. Um, and then, you know, they had Juan Cespedes describing the four hundred thousand dollar check being delivered to Larry Householder. It was made out to Generation Now and lobbyist Bob Klafke, who denies this account, but. Uh, Cespedes says that Klafke slid it across the table and said our clients, First Energy Solutions, really care about their issue. And Householder peeked in the envelope, looked at the number and said, well, yes, they do. Mm -hmm. um, that was a key meeting. The The whole um, flying on the First Energy jet to, to Washington, D.C., there was a lot of time spent by the defense um, 
uh, fighting over like whether or not Chuck Jones arrived on the 18th or the 19th and whether or not Jeff Longstreth's recollection of a, of a, um, a dinner on the 18th in which Chuck was there or not there, etc. cetera. Uh, the defense, you know, I think that they were trying to kick up some dust and cast some doubt, get some reasonable doubt about the veracity of, of some of these details. Um, but in the long run, I think it was just like the volume of evidence that really um, convinced the jurors. Of course, Larry Householder himself took the stand in his own defense, which is always risky. Many times defendants choose not to do that. His co-defendant, Matt Borges, chose not to do that. He testified from what we read from your descriptions. He seemed to perhaps win over the jury the first day, but then the cross-examination was a different story. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the householder, you know, he's a very skilled communicator. Um, he can, he's spent his entire career convincing people of his ideas and to join his team and to donate to his campaigns. And so I think that was, you know, sort of his play was to, to appeal to the jury and to explain why he did what he did, why he, why he backed House Bill 6, uh, why he wanted to be Speaker of the House. Um, you know, he said he wanted he wanted to return to politics to deal with the divisiveness in politics. And then the next day, Emily Gladfelter, who is an assistant U.S. attorney who's got some big wins uh, under her belt, uh, she did the cross examination, and it was it was relentless. And you know, she asked um, Larry Householder, you know, you said you wanted to return to deal with divisiveness, and um, he said, yeah. And then she's you know she's like, okay, let's roll the tape. And they played a clip of him saying, if you F with us, we're going to F your kids. And that is the, you know, obviously divisive. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was, he was a polarizing figure, you know, throughout his tenure. I think that we can say that on the record. He shot, he filmed a TV commercial where he shot a television with a, with a shotgun um, when he was running for uh, his seat back in, I don't know what, what it was, five, six years ago. Um, the sentencing is next. A white-collar white crime in federal court moves at a snail's pace. So it's going to be several months, correct, before we hear how long a prison sentence they get? Yeah, so the, the um, pre-sentencing report is usually takes 60 to 90 days. So, you know, we're talking like three months before um, that is complete. And then the sentencing will be done by Judge Black, who heard the case. Um each of them face up to 20 years in prison for this racketeering charge. Um, and then there's, there's federal sentencing guidelines. I'm not really all that familiar with it, but I do know that, you know, it's based on whether or not you have prior, um, prior convictions. If you, if you cooperate, which these guys, neither of them did, um, et cetera. So it's up to judge black to do the sentence. Yeah. You have to think, you have to think if they're calling and the prosecutors are calling this, the largest scandal in the state's history, they would probably ask for the maximum for Larry Householder anyway, whether the, whether I mean, they don't get pros it. Don't prosecutors always ask for the Yeah, maximum? that's true. You know, they start at the top and work their way down. <laughs> um, this case is not over, though. A um, lot of names still out there. Sam Randazzo, the FBI raided his Columbus home a few years ago. He was the former chair of the uh, Public Utilities Commission, which regulates utilities in the state. He has not been charged. First Energy Executives, the company is... Uh, pled guilty. The executives have not. Other lobbyists who testified played a role in this. Do we expect other indictments, other guilty pleas? Uh, I asked um, I asked U.S. Attorney Ken Parker about that, and he he refused to answer e even a no comment. He just said thank you and went on to the <laughs> some more. 
not relevant comments to the question. Um, so I, you know, I really, I don't know. It's, uh, it's unclear at this point, but that deferred prosecution agreement, you're right. First Energy admitted to bribing Larry Householder and Sam Randazzo. Uh, Sam Randazzo has not been charged and he said he has not done anything wrong. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where it's going to go from here. You have to think if people are watching what happened yesterday, watching what happened during this trial, if they are in talks with prosecutors, that those talks are accelerating a bit. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you think after the swiftness of the verdict and the relentless cross-examination the prosecutors put on here? I mean, that's the logical yeah. line of thinking. It, this this also could go beyond the HB6, the nuclear bailout. You know, we learned the FBI was still, was first looking into sports betting when this thing was getting going. And former House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger, his house was raided by the FBI. That investigation continues. No charges there. There could be other tentacles to this that go on for, for months or years to come, right? Sure. I mean, I, I imagine that they probably have all kinds of threads to pull on. Um, you know, you're right. The, the, the FBI public corruption squad got got started uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And, you know, it's it's like a long, long build. They, you know, they um, got convictions against um, state lawmakers, Clayton Lucky and Carlton Weddington. They uh, convicted the um, deputy treasurer of Ohio, Amir Ahmed. Um, they, you know, got these uh, corruption cases in um, Cincinnati and, um, you know, there's an investigation. There has been an investigation. I don't know if it's still open or not up against the electronic classroom of tomorrow. Um, they have been looking at Cliff Rosenberger for almost five years now. It's it's coming up on five years in April since his um, his resignation. And so, you know, the question is whether or not the feds are going to clear him or or what just seems kind of unfair to have that hanging out over his head all these years um and then you know the house bill six case and so i really think this is sort of the house bill six case is sort of like the culmination of all of the work and groundwork that the feds have been putting into public corruption cases yeah this was a big one and it it's it hit with a big splash at the state house when it broke and now a, a, a guilty verdict we saw during this trial, thanks to your reporting, the reporting of others, and the testimony, we saw behind the curtain the, the the unpleasant side of politics, the role that money plays in politics, big money plays in politics. You've covered the state house for a long time. There's calls for reform. Do you think those there's any impetus to get it done this time? I don't know. I mean, certainly if 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 anything could prompt reform this could be it however um you know dark money is uh is legal and it can be used in a legal fashion and um you know the, i guess this this kind of like draws a, a clear bright line of you know what what you can and can't do with dark money you can't enrich yourself it can't be of such a an enormous amount it can't be for in exchange for for legislation, um, and you're right. This did kind of pull the curtain back on on the politics and the the fundraising and you know the the whole scenario. And it was a couple of times in the recordings uh, played where um, you know these players were kind of they were worried that journalists were going to find out about what yeah. was going on. Randy Ludlow's from the Dispatch. Yeah, you got a shout was, out or two. <laughs> yep, my name. I got a cameo in there too. That's right. And, 
And, um, you know, it really, it really speaks volumes to the fact that we need more eyes on the state house, not, not fewer and good journalism matters. And, you know, for all of you listeners out there, if you're not subscribing, do it now. Yep. Thank you, Laura. Thanks uh, for your wonderful reporting. Uh, you have basically lived in Cincinnati for the past two months. So we welcome you back to central Ohio. And uh, again, we appreciate with no cameras in the courtroom, we really rely on reporters like yourself to let us know what was going on. You did a terrific job and we appreciate that. And we appreciate you joining us here on All Sides. Yeah, my pleasure. When we come back, we'll get a prosecutor, former prosecutor's look at uh, some of the legal uh, maneuvering that happened during the trial and what might happen next. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher. I'm Mike Thompson sitting in for Ann today. The biggest public corruption case in state history has ended with a federal jury finding both former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and the ex-chair of the Ohio Republican Party, Matt Borges, guilty of racketeering. They now await sentencing and they could face up to 20 years in federal prison. They do plan to appeal. We're talking about the case today, how the testimony played out, why the jury reached the verdict that it did, and what might lie ahead. And now this segment, we look at the law. Steve Gooden is an attorney with Porter Wright Morris and Arthur in Cincinnati. He's also a former state and federal prosecutor. Steve Gooden, welcome to All Sides. Good morning. Uh, You followed this case closely, I assume. What do you think was the difference? Why did the jury reach a verdict relative quickly, nine hours, not fairly quickly for a seven-week trial? Uh, No, it was pretty quick, and I I don't think uh, there were a lot of folks in the room who were surprised. I didn't get to see every moment of the trial. I do have my own law practice, but I saw the key moments, and certainly Householder's testimony, I think, is where um, uh, most of the jurors, in my view, uh, decided his culpability. Um, He did uh, reasonably well on his direct examination. He was charming. He was funny. He was folksy. He was rehearsed. Uh, But he ultimately overplayed his hand. He said some things which were, uh, as we like to say, demonstrably not true. Um, And the U.S. attorneys really kind of ate him up on on his cross-examination. They were able to show that uh, despite his protestations that he had been on a First Energy private jet going to the Trump inauguration, the First Energy folks had paid for his hotel room, uh, his breakfast, taken him out to elaborate dinners, that he had had access to the First Energy suite, um, at the World Series uh, games in Cleveland a few years ago, um, but uh, you know that which all sort of belied his claim that he really uh, wasn't coordinating with these folks and really didn't know them all that well. You know, I was I was wondering about that strategy, and maybe you can talk about it. You know, I always thought this case came down to the difference between hardball, even ugly politics, versus quid pro quo bribery, and. I thought that they could argue, Householder could argue, and his attorneys could argue, say, look, 
this isn't pretty, but this is the way politics works. These these contributions are legal. These groups are legal. Uh, I didn't coordinate with this group directly, but we I support the legislation and we use their help to to get it passed. Would that have been a better strategy rather than say we kind of like tried to warm up to the jury and say I didn't meet with these guys that much or things like that? Well, frankly, the time it came to his testimony, he had no choice but to testify, in my view. Um, you know, that what you just described was the original trial strategy. And the problem is that there was a mountain of evidence uh, that pointed to coordination. I mean, these folks, Householder and, and his lieutenants, all sort of lived their lives on their cell phones and in their email. And uh, there were uh, many, many, many uh, communications that they that the Fed were able to recover that really pointed toward this communication. And um and I think what you just hit on is is precisely the issue here and what makes this case unique and what makes the cases in uh, the Cincinnati City Hall uh, that were brought with the same team so unique is in politics, you're, the way it's supposed to work is that you can financially support candidates that generally endorse your position, like they're pro-development or they're pro-environment or they're pro-fracking or whatever the case may be. But when you give a contribution in exchange for a position on a piece of specific legislation, you enter the realm of quid pro quo. And this is really where, where this particular team of investigators have been drilling down both in the local level and in the state house now for several years. They're looking for that precise quid pro quo um, you know, kind of deal. And, I, and, and they certainly seem to find it here based on the texts and, uh, and emails and so forth that were presented in court as well as the live testimony. So he really had no choice but to get up and try to clean it up and say that, look, there was no criminal intent. And I think a lot of his testimony, frankly, was was put in uh, uh, to the record of the case in hopes that a court of appeals might one day look at this and say, well, maybe there, there is some sliver of doubt or maybe he didn't truly have an intent to um, uh, collaborate in a criminal way. Were you surprised that Matt Borges did not uh, testify in his defense? Or do you think he saw that cross-examination and said, you know what, I don't want any part of that? He says they decided well, you know, early, I, earlier than that. Right. I, I think Matt Borges was in a significantly different position, and I think he's also in a different position on appeal. And uh, if you listen to a lot of the case, it's very clear that whatever happened here, Borges uh, came to the uh, operation late uh, and was not really an insider in the householder world. I mean, those who follow these things know that, uh, you know, Matt Borges was sort of a, a John Kasich uh, yeah, person. Uh, and that uh, sort of the Kasich world and householder world, uh, you know, never, uh, never got along all that well uh, in Washington. I'm sorry, in, in Columbus. Uh, so it's not a big surprise that he wasn't directly involved. The only evidence that they presented on Borges that I heard that was very compelling was his involvement in trying to stop the House Bill 6 referendum. Um, so I think he, he was probably smart to sit back and just say, look, there really wasn't enough evidence in the record here to tie me to the overall conspiracy, the overall criminal enterprise that's required um, in a racketeering case. And uh, he will probably have a bit more factually to talk about in, on appeal. I think Householder will be talking more about constitutional issues and Citizens United and the legality of dark money and the vehicles that he used. Uh, but I think Borges will actually we'll have some things to talk about factually on appeal as to whether or not he was truly a mean player in the uh, in the enterprise. Speaking of the appeal, householders' attorneys were accusing the judge of bias. They said Timothy Black, he ran for Ohio Supreme Court way back in 2000, and apparently Larry Householder worked for his opponent. And because of that, Black held still holds a grudge against Larry Householder. Uh, they complained that uh, the, judge was, the judge was tough on them during the trial. 
at one point outside the jury's presence, he admonished them for clicking pens and making faces. Is that grounds for an appeal? Well, they'll sure try, but I don't think it will go anywhere, to be frank. I mean, I'm, you know, I practice law in the federal courts here in Cincinnati, and I've tried many cases in front of Judge Black. And, and I know these his Larry Householder's attorneys are not from this area, but I've got news for them. Judge Black is hard on everyone. Uh, he's been hard on me. Uh, he's, a, he's a great judge. He's known as being very, very fair. And yes, they, I, I believe they did try to, um, his team did try to introduce some, um, you know, sort of some politics and, and the, the hint of bias uh, into the trial. I mean, he was an Obama appointee, but I don't think that means anything here at all. Um, I mean, it, was, it is a very, very, very high bar to try to prove that a judge abused his discretion and somehow um, uh, tainted uh, the evidence that was presented. I think that's going to be a very difficult uh, argument to make on appeal. That doesn't mean they won't try. Um, if I were handling the householder appeal, I would focus on the mechanics of the racketeering statute. This is really the first time uh, that any of my colleagues can tell that the racketeering law, the federal racketeering law anyway, has been used in this political context. Uh, and it will get some appellate scrutiny just because of that, because it is a somewhat novel theory of kind of arguing that a, a 501c4 and a political action committee and that so elected officials can form an enterprise uh, that is basically to be treated like a gang or organized crime or mafia under that statute, which is really what it was designed to uh, attack. So uh, I would uh, take a much more uh, uh, piecemeal and, and detailed uh, attack on the statute and its application to these facts rather than trying to argue nothing nothing went wrong. But you're right. I think they will go after the judge in the appeal, but I don't think that goes anywhere. What do you think? Do you think that the racketeering uh, statute was used appropriately here, that it was a criminal enterprise, I mean, as you said, it's usually been used for, you know, organized crime, mafia, uh, those types of things. But this was an organized, but is a political organization. Well, I think they made a very compelling argument uh, uh, on behalf of the government that, that it is appropriate. In fact, if, um, you know, having watched the closing statements or most of the closing statements, it was very clear that uh, House that, that in the room, that folks felt that Householder had been convicted by his own testimony and cross-examination, that he had overplayed his hand. And the case was sort of over. And it felt as though the prosecutors uh, in their closing statements were basically justifying the use of the RICO slash racketeering statute to the Court of Appeals. Like, they're, like we're going to put this in the record so whoever looks at these transcripts one day understands our theory of the case and understands what we're doing. It was almost like they were talking past the jury and going on and starting to preserve and make their appellate arguments. So that's certainly going to be fertile ground for, for debate and discussion. But no, I believe that, that uh, as a matter of law, if I were looking at this if, with my legal hat on, no, I think I think it's very appropriate uh, uh, what they've done here. Their theory of the case is unique and a little novel, but, but strong. And again, it all flows from the quid pro quo. If there is some sort of predicate criminal offense, some sort of basic offense, typically it's bribery or in, in a typical RICO case, it's the drug distribution or human trafficking or something of that nature. But as long as there is some crime uh, from which the enterprise flows and which the enterprise supports, uh, you have a legal argument that the statute's being used appropriately. And I think that's, uh, again, I think those are the kinds of arguments we're going to be seeing up at the Sixth Circuit. Do you think other prosecutors around the country, we're talking with Steve Gooden, he's an attorney with Porter Wright Morris and Arthur in Cincinnati, he's a former state and federal prosecutor. We're talking, about, of course, about the Larry Householder guilty verdict yesterday. Also, Matt Borges, lobbyist, found guilty yesterday down in Cincinnati in the huge House Bill 6 bribery case. Uh, Steve, do you think other prosecutors will see the success of this case and say, you know what, 
when we look at public corruption, we're going to we're going to go this route. You know, I do. I think it's going to be, um, you know, I, th- I think it really is uh, the beginning of what could be a sea change in how these cases are, are, are viewed nationally. And I, I, one of the things that's fascinated me about this is how much national press this case has, has gotten. Uh, you know, here in Cincinnati, it's been followed, but not but not as closely. It's not been front page news, as it were. But the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, it is front page. Um, you know, it really does go to the role of money in politics. It really go- does go to this idea that um, and the sort of post-Citizens United framework, whether or not um, uh, practices have emerged that are, are, are just lax and are, are, you know, adverse to the public interest in some way. And it does point to, you know, particularly if the Court of Appeals upholds the use of the racketeering laws in this context, I, I do think it will uh, change the way some prosecutors think about these things. What kind of sentences do you think these two men will receive? They face up to 20 years. This is their first conviction, but it is the largest, prosecutors say, largest scandal in Ohio history. Well, it's going to, it's going to be a tough call uh, for the judge. Um, you know, the uh, the federal sentencing guidelines, as your as your other guest alluded to, are, are are relatively complex. You know, in state court, it's pretty simple. You have a, a range and factors to consider. Um, in federal court, you get credit, you know, the, both good and bad. Um, my best guess is that these guys are going to fall right in the middle of the range. Um, you know, I, I would not be surprised to see a sentence in the eight to 10 year range. Um, I say that because there is no, uh, you know, the, 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 the big mitigating factors are typically cooperation, remorse, you know, efforts to mitigate the effect of what happened. And uh, after you denied the, what happened for six weeks in front of a jury, it's going to be very, very difficult to convince any judge, uh, much less this judge, uh, that you have some sort of genuine remorse and concern for what has occurred. Um, but also, you know, the, uh, the judge is allowed to take into account the deterrent effect uh, that a sentence might have and how the how the public might view it. So I think anything um, that would look like a slap on the wrist after um, this trial and after everything that that came out uh, would, would undermine that. So I think the judge also will be mindful of and legally should be mindful of or must be mindful of uh, how the public would perceive uh, this sentence. For the folks involved in this case, those who were charged, Larry Householder, Matt Borges, who were convicted yesterday by a jury, Juan Cespedes and Jeff Longstreth, who pleaded guilty and cooperated, then Neil Clark, the lobbyist who, who took his own life in the, in the, while waiting for this trial. The case for those folks, pending appeal, is over. But there are other folks out there, Sam Randazzo, former head of the Utilities Com- Commission, other executives at First Energy, who the company admits that they, uh, they had bribed or, or used money for influence. What do you think happens to those folks? Uh, will there be more indictments, more guilty pleas? Do you think? You know, I mean, I, I, I really, I really can't uh, speculate in any kind of you know informed way on that. I would just say, as have, having worked in a you know in a U.S. attorney's office and having worked in the state prosecutor's office, I, it would be in my mind kind of unlikely um, to to go ahead and take a case like this to trial and then indict other folks under the same theory after they, they've heard all the evidence and after they've seen all the trial strategy and what have you. I mean, my, uh, I mean, the typical practice would be to indict everyone at once uh, so that they're all in the same, you know, same position. Um, also, you know, there may be issues, but we don't know if there are any kind of tolling agreements or anything that have been um, uh, executed. But What is a tolling agreement? Uh, well, we, uh, it pertains to the statute of limitations on okay. these offenses. 
So, you know, sometimes, you know, you have to bring them in a certain amount of time. Usually it's in the four to six range under the federal laws. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a tolling agreement basically says, look, we're, I know you know, you're out of time to prosecute me, but we're still talking and I'm, I'm tolling the statute of limitations. So we don't, we're not privy to any of that. And that's, that's not unusual, but I would be a little surprised if there were additional uh, indictments related precisely to this um, uh, series of allegations, but you know, one never knows. And the U.S. Attorney here, Ken Parker, you know, was playing it all very, very close to uh, close to his chest. From a fairness standpoint, if you convict someone of accepting a bribe, don't you also have to charge the person who gave him the bribe? Um, not always. Um, <laughs> I mean, from a, from a um, uh, what we're talking about, what legal, legalness versus actual like human fairness. Unfortunately, <laughs> those two things don't always go together. Um, you know, there, for, there, there was every indication in this trial that the folks at First Energy have, uh, in one way or another, accepted responsibility for their actions. They paid a large corporate fine. Uh, there were folks from First Energy who testified uh, on behalf of the of the government. So, uh, no, they cooperated um, uh, pretty significantly, uh, and it looks as though the companies paid a pretty high price. I know, you know, some of the folks have lost their employment there. Um, you know, the, the feds are uh, federal uh, prosecutors are well within their discretion to say that, you know, that's good enough. OK. Steve Gooden, attorney with Porter Wright Morrison, Arthur, former state and federal prosecutor. Thanks very much for your very interesting insights into what uh, happened there in this trial, what might happen on appeal. Thanks for joining us here on All Sides. Thank you. Take care. When we come back, we'll look at what's next for Ohio. What's next for Ohio politics? Will lawmakers learn from this and play by the rules? When All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher. I'm Mike Thompson sitting in for Ann today. The biggest public corruption case in state history is over. Yesterday, a federal jury found both former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and lobbyist and ex-chair of the Ohio GOP Matt Borges guilty of racketeering. They now await sentencing. They face up to 20 years in prison. They plan to appeal but this seven-week trial has really pulled back the curtain as to how laws are made or sometimes made at the Ohio State House, and what was behind that curtain was not pretty. Catherine Terser is the executive director of Common Cause Ohio. It's an advocacy group that pushes for greater transparency in government. She has been watching this case closely. Catherine, welcome to All Sides. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here today. What do you what's your reaction to the verdict and the culmination of this seven weeks of secret recordings, text messages, witness statements showing how it works down at the state house? Well, I think like a lot of people, when the verdict came out, I breathed, you know, this enormous sigh of relief because, you know, I you know, I worry so much about accountability and it was it, it's just so important for Ohioans 
to have know that, you know, Larry Householder and Matt Borges are going to be held accountable for their actions. And then, you know, it's been a tawdry few weeks listening to what happened. And when I say listening, listening and reading and trying to figure out exactly what happened. So, like, when we start to think about transparency, the fact that we couldn't actually watch this trial was a challenge. Yeah. You know, many of us were following it by Twitter, you know, like what's who's tweeting what, what's exactly happening, and then reading the articles and trying to figure out what's going on. And then there's the whole lack of transparency that's at the state house. And so one of the things that we can use the trial for is a roadmap for what we need to fix. When you look at the trial, was it did anything surprise you? What you heard on those secret recordings, what you read in those text messages the descriptions of meetings in private dining clubs outside of Columbus. Did any of that say, well, I didn't know that was going on? Because you've been watching this stuff pretty closely. So I've been watching it really closely. And and I think it's important for us to think back to 2019 when folks were attempting to connect the dots. And there were things like, okay, the Generation Now Facebook people are actually people that work for First Energy Solutions. And so you're like, okay, this has got to be, it has to be First Energy. But, you know, what? in 2019, when they were, you know, addressing and passing House Bill 6, everything was a little bit of like playing connect the dots. And so I really looked at the trial as giving us, you know, the full picture. Now, I would have guessed at like lavish dinners and I would have guessed at, all sorts of, uh, shall we say, backroom wheeling and dealing. I, I think the, one of the things that did shock me had to do with Larry Householder essentially saying, oh, we'll worry about, this was about Dave Greenspan, was something along the lines of... State lawmaker who, who voted no. <laughs> yes, something along the lines, oh, don't worry about him. We'll, we'll mess, and I'm saying mess, uh, yes. as opposed to something else, we'll mess with his kids. And, I, and so... Really, the the thing that I was struck with at that point was, you know, we're talking about a racketeering charge, a RICO charge that's generally the mob. Um, and listening to that, you know, you, you start to think, oh, good Lord, you know, this is this is like like the mob as politicians. And we deserve so much better. The argument is that the argument that you started this case was this. Politics isn't pretty. It's the, the, old, the old cliches. You don't want to see how the sausage is made. You just want to enjoy it after it's done. And this is just hardball politics, hard negotiating. In the heat of battle, people say things maybe they don't mean. And how, how do you read? Is, this went beyond that, you believe? So one of the things that we do know is that there's a fair amount of, shall we say, gentle and not so gentle pressure. And that there are times that some of the negotiating is a little bit unattractive. So I think we can all kind of own that. And certainly um, some of the negotiation over amendments and deals and all of those kinds of things. But the thing about this is this this went beyond the boundaries of what is appropriate. But we have a system that's set up so that so much is done in private. 
So, you know, when we think about kind of the, the use of dark money, and so so essentially, you know, First Energy giving money to a Generation Now and get, and then money being given to additional nonprofits essentially to support, you know, H- House Bill 6 and support, um, you know, pushback on the referendum and all of those kind of machinations that were going on. Well, in 2010, when the Supreme Court decided Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission, at the same time, Anthony Kennedy wrote a decision about the importance of disclosure. And so if we had appropriate disclosure so that you could follow the money, understand the funding sources of political advertisements, we would not be in the same kind of mess. I'm not saying there wouldn't be shenanigans. I wouldn't say that Larry Housel wouldn't strong arm people, but we would not be having a conversation. There wouldn't be a trial that, in fact, these, you know, 501c4, it's an IRS designation. These these nonprofits not having access, public access to the donors for a use in politics leads us to situations like this. We're talking with Catherine Turser from Common Cause Ohio, voter advocacy group, good government advocacy group, pushing for greater transparency in government. So can state lawmakers, they promise reform. There's a couple of bills out there floating around. I'm not sure where they are in the, in the, in the process. But do you want, can they do that under Citizens United? Can they require more disclosure? Yes, they can require more disclosure. And I think the issue is the political will. So it's not like we haven't waited a couple years for this trial. So this, you know, when Larry Householder and Matt Borges were arrested July 21st, 2020. So we have had plenty of time for legislature, the legislature to take action. And so, yes, Derek Marin has a bill that addresses greater transparency in lobbying. And, and, and I actually think it's, you know, there are things that I might change and I, you know, I'd like to have a visit with, you know, like there, that, that's. But what I want to highlight is even though there are a few things I would tweak, it's a decent bill. But what it doesn't do is address the dark money in politics and dark money that was used, the kind of ads that were used during 2019, the Generation Now ads, that were to lobby the public to support a bill that ended up basically ripping us off. And those ads and those tactics were way over the top. I mean, there, there was ads saying that this was a Chinese government takeover, uh, that the repeal effort was a Chinese government takeover because other utilities were fighting it. And then, of course, the tactics of trying to thwart the signature gatherers, they would, they would have people next to them, gatherers accused them of harassment. They were paying off signature collectors to take a plane ride home and give them a few thousand bucks so they wouldn't collect signatures. I mean, those were, that was pretty over the top. Yes, and one of the things that, you know, secrets are just secrets, right? Except for they can foster some really malicious behavior. So if, in fact... We knew who was responsible for those really xenophobic ads. They might not ever have chosen to do that. If it was really transparent, the kind of shenanigans that were going on during the referendum effort, well, they might have curbed their behavior. I guess what I'm trying to say is that Ohio should put in place some really good guardrails. Now, it's not going to stop some of of the things that we might look side-eyed at, 
but it certainly would stop things from spinning completely out of control like the householder enterprise. You know, Governor DeWine, we asked for comment from him yesterday, and through his spokesman, he said, no comment, which we thought was kind of surprising. Usually he's pretty forthcoming when asked a question. Are you surprised that he didn't at least say, we respect the jury's decision, what he did was what Larry Householder and Matt did, Borges did was wrong. We need to learn from it and move on. He didn't even say that. I think it's incredibly sad because we need the, the governor to, to really be forceful about the importance of rule of law. And it's, He's a former prosecutor, former attorney general. Yes, he is a former prosecutor, a former attorney general. Um, I, I do know that there can be some hesitancy. And so, for example, he did appoint Sam Randazzo as part of the deferred prosecution agreement with First Energy. Essentially, they said they gave four, $4.3 million to Sam Randazzo's you know, entity to then to give to Sam. So it could be that that appointment process made him nervous. It could be that he, he needed a little time to process it. Do you think that we just talked to an attorney who does not think there will be any more indictments or any more uh, plea deals that come out of this? Is that generally prosecutors, they will indict who they think they can convict in one swoop and then move on to the next case. Do you think others should be held accountable here? Sam Randazzo being one? So one of the things I think is that there there is the householder enterprise that was all about, let, you know, let's get Larry Householder elected and his friends elected, allies elected, so that he could become speaker. Then, you know, the money spent on House Bill 6. And and then there was a separate part, which had to do with the Public Utilities Commission. And, and so I could see, you know, saying, hey, this must all be over. This must all be over, all the indictments. And yet, what happened with Sam Randazzo is separate from all of the House Bill 6 shenanigans and all of all the machinations that went on. Because yeah, they, they, he's in charge of util- regulating the entire utility That's system. That's correct. The entire and system. It, and, and it's separate. Yes, he was in, you know, we, we do know that Sam Randazzo participated in writing and advocating for House Bill 6. There were things that he did that are certainly questionable. Um, but it, and, and, we deserve to have good information about that and to see him also held accountable. Um, and I, but I do see, see it as separate from all of the House Bill 6 legislative first energy. Larry Householder has always been kind of, I mean, he was Speaker of the House twice. Yes. So to call him an outsider is a stretch. <laughs> yes. But he's, he was kind of an uh, outsider on the inside. Is there a thought at the state house that lawmakers look at this and say, you know, that was Larry Householder. He did things his own way. I don't operate that way. He got caught. That's him. I don't have to change the way I do business. Do you fear that? So I do fear that. I also, when we think about campaign finance rules, these are rules that the legislature makes. And so... If they truly wanted to create a more transparent system, they already would have. You know, the problem is that folks are benefiting. These are candidates, elected officials that benefit from dark money. And it can be hard to step away from money. You know, you think about, you know, that old Mark Hanna quote, you know, there are two things that are important in Ohio politics. The first is money and I don't remember the second. <laughs> yeah. In politics, really, anywhere, you see it. You know, this money it just plays a such a large, large role. 
until the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court says that money does not equal speech, do you see it changing? So I do think that we can we can create a much more transparent system. I do think we also should be having conversations about, you know, um, whether money actually is speech. One of the things that we do know is when we are in person, we know how to regulate speech. You go to a, a hearing, a public hearing at the state house, you're given approximately five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a way of regulating speech. I went to a hearing once where I hit a banner and I brought it in and we unveiled it and the sergeant in arms took it away, took away our speech that was on the banner. And so if we can regulate speech when we're in person, we can regulate speech that is spent in elections. To use your five minute metaphor, you got five minutes, but your opponent got five minutes. If if your opponent has a hundred million dollars and you have a million dollars, that person has much more availability for speech than you do. And so many of us don't have a million dollars. Yes, I'm being using round numbers there, but yes, indeed. Um, the this case was huge. It was we talked about it a lot. You paid very close attention to it. It barely got mentioned in the campaign last fall. I'm not sure how many people are paying attention to it now. You, you call for transparency, but if people are not motivated to look at what is hopefully newly transparent, will it matter? Why don't people care about this case? So I, th- I think that we are really challenged right now, and it has to do with the, the change in the press and how much kind of access to information there actually is. And, you know, I am hopeful because we're talking about $60 million. We're talking about an enormous bribery scandal, this enormous corruption case. This is the time that we should all be paying attention. And, you know, we're going into Sunshine Week. And, you know, one of the things that we can all do as, you know, citizens of Ohio, voters in Ohio, is to start to really pay as much attention as we can to the state house and to what's happening in local government. You know, we are part of the solution here. You know, transparency doesn't work unless it's both meaningful and people are taking advantage of it. Now, I do believe if you create a greater transparency when it comes to those 501c4s, that transparency would also be available to stockholders. Yes. And they will care. And stockholders do pay really good attention. And so, you know, there's the pragmatic part of me says, you know, that may make a difference. Is it actually in the corporation's best interest to be engaging in this kind of political process? Yes. I guess if it, if it leads to higher profits, then the shareholders are, are good. But if it leads to bad publicity and, and lower profits, then uh, certainly not. Uh, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And we got a lot of sunshine, even though we couldn't actually see it happen in federal court during this trial. So we'll see if it has any impact on Ohio politics. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. All sides with Ann Fisher. Thank you much.